You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. To me, it was more just through my own experience of seeing that women, finance, and education as a trifecta is extremely powerful. And I saw that, I mean, I sat on the state school board for eight years, introduced financial literacy into the curriculum. Just the ripple effects and the positive collateral benefits when women manage their money better. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. Start by knowing what you own and owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. You know, when we talk about women breaking the glass ceiling and bridging the gender pay gap and finally taking our places in the upper ranks of traditionally male-dominated industries, it's often convenient to say that we are making slow but steady progress or that change will come eventually, both of which happen to be true. But what are we all doing right now on a daily basis to hasten that sea change that we've all been told is coming? Because I've got news for you. It is not coming without action from all of us. It's not coming without all of us uniting together around these common goals. And don't get me wrong, I know so many of you do so much to lift up other women at home and at work, and I love that. But the truth is, many of us could be doing more, which is why I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest. Janet Cowell is the CEO of Girls Who Invest. It is a nonprofit organization dedicated to increasing gender diversity in the investment management industry, where we all know there are just not enough women. I've worked with so many different financial services companies over my 30 years as a personal finance reporter. I've reported on the efforts that many of them have made to just bring more women into the business itself, into the upper echelons of management. And many of them, most of them, I would say, would just acknowledge it is not happening fast enough for any of us, which is why organizations like Girls Who Invest are so important. They do their work through educational programming and mentoring and internships for women in college. And they are on a mission, I love this, to have 30% of the world's investable capital managed by women by the year 2030. Janet, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So I was wondering if we had actually met before, because you were the treasurer of the state of North Carolina, and I have been to several North Carolina women's conferences over the past, I don't know, decade or two. Mm -hmm. And I just was wondering, you don't look familiar to me, but uh, did our paths cross before? All could be possible. I was treasurer for eight years, and of course, there were a lot of events all over the state during those years, so we may well have interacted. And and you were before that you were a securities analyst at 
at yeah, a number of firms? I started out my career in Hong Kong with Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, and then uh, Lehman sort of took over the team, and so I worked for Lehman Brothers in Hong Kong as well. Amazing. Amazing. How did you come to focus on this mission of getting more women into financial services? So when I was treasurer, as you, I, I managed over $100 billion, and you can imagine there's a lot of pitches coming at you when you have that much money to deploy, and you do notice uh, that there is not much gender diversity or diversity generally, right, in, right. in, in money management, and uh, was active on a number of fronts in trying to be more inclusive both in our own sort of shop, but also uh, to influence, you know, broader diversity. We advocated with other shareholders for more women on boards. I had emerging manager programs um, for, uh, you know, rising asset managers that might, you know, we hoped were more diverse, younger talent. So when I left the treasurer's office, I decided not to run again after 15 years in public service. Uh, I wanted to do something around continuing that initiative of, having a more diverse and inclusive industry. Let's talk about diversity and inclusion for a second, because sometimes there's this feeling that we're doing it for the benefit of the people who will then get jobs that they might not otherwise get. But there's a flip side. And the flip side is when you have a more diverse workforce, when you have a more diverse and more inclusive industry, research has shown that industry does better. Can you talk about that as it applies to investing? Sure. There have been a number of studies, as, as you mentioned, right, showing that diversely governed organizations do better, diverse teams on asset management do better. So this is about good business, and it is about better returns. Um, to hire a more diverse workforce. How does that apply to women managing money? Well, I mean, asset management, right, huge industry. How you deploy, I mean, capital, it's a very powerful industry. And as much money as people have made, I think if they had deployed it with more diverse teams, they would have done better. I mean, Lehman Brothers, which, of course, I mentioned, right, I had worked for you know, there was the famous line, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters, they wouldn't have ended the way they ended. They had no women on their governing board when they went bankrupt. We we, uh, we did a show recently with Nicole Connolly, who is um, a portfolio manager at Fidelity, which sponsors this show. Um, she is managing a fund that invests in companies that have put women forward. Um, and has a very detailed and strong filter for choosing those investments and and making sure um, that she's picking the right ones. But the argument for starting this fund in the first place, and anybody who wants to listen to it, we did a show on this earlier, um, the argument for starting this fund was that this fund would provide greater returns because when women are investing, they do better. Is that something that you found? Is that what led you to um, to try to build up this organization? I'm not even sure it was, you know, that specific in that as treasurer, there are so few women managed funds. 
and the whole gender lens investing, especially back when I took over in 09, we were still recovering from the financial crisis. I would say there's been a lot of progress made, right, in the last 10 years. So I didn't have some empirical study. To me, it was more just through my own experience of seeing that women finance and education as a trifecta is extremely powerful. And I saw that. I mean, I sat on the state school board for eight years, introduced financial literacy into the curriculum. Just the ripple effects and the positive collateral benefits when women manage their money better. There is a big confidence gap when it comes to women managing their money better. And I think in order to get more women investing money as a profession, we're going to first need to get more women investing their own money. How do we do that? Well, you're right. And actually, there's not only the confidence gap, there's an interest gap, right? So, Well, actually, talk about that. Yeah. So when we're recruiting young women, we did a survey of a bunch of undergraduate women this year, about 1,000 sophomores, freshmen and sophomores. And there definitely shows that women tend to be less interested, I think just culturally, in North America and Europe, Northern Europe at least, there's some sense that math and science are more masculine, that it's not what you do. Still. Still, right? It's shocking. I had coffee with the new business school dean at Northwestern is Italian. And she said, you know, as much as Southern Europe is viewed as not particularly progressive for women, when it comes to math and science— it's not that way. She's like, I didn't grow up with people telling me that science and math were kind of for guys. So she's like, we have other problems. But it really, it's interesting that we all think that Northern Europe is so progressive, but it's really not. And mm-hmm. of course, China, Spain, there's a lot of countries where women don't get the same cultural signals that this is not for them somehow. Why do you think we're still getting them here? It's embedded in so many different cultural aspects. And I will say it's true. I'm from the South. I can hear. And (laughs) I went to Auburn last spring, and then I went to Harvard. You would think, oh, well, would Harvard be better? But I heard the same stories from women at both Auburn, where they said, you know, guys want to talk to women who are elementary school majors. When I'm at the bar on campus and I say I'm a business and finance major, they're like, uh. And then I talked to a Harvard MBA student who said, you know, I have my girlfriends. They're all going into consulting and marketing and I want to hang out with them. But when I go into finance, it's all men. So it's amazing that it's just dispersed throughout our culture, all these little micro signals that this is not for you. And of course, those micro signals over enough time tamper people's interests. Right. So I think part of you know this whole education combined with investing is important because you have to first spark that People don't even understand what finance is. They don't understand that it's venture capital, that it's impact investing, that it's not just making a loan at your commercial bank, right? Just exposing them to the breadth of this industry and the ways it can actually have impact in their own community and in their lives. And then second, building their confidence that, okay, you're interested, you can do this. That so much of investing is about telling a story, right? Being able to look at a company, understand why you think that company is a good investment and convince people through, yes, some math and some, you know, basic ratio analysis, but it's not PhD black box science. Right. And I also think there's a lot of just understanding what's going on 
in society, right? Of course, I did a couple of years in equity research, too. I I worked at Dean Witter before my first job at a personal finance magazine. And yes, you have to model everything, right? You have to understand. I was was actually a healthcare analyst, and and the, the nightmare that I have on a recurring basis is is the units of these surgical elements called trocars that we had to just, how many trocars are they going to have this quarter and this year? And is it going to be up? And is it going to be down? And, you know, the trocars on the spreadsheets still make me kind of nuts. However, it's also story, right? It's also what's happening in the world. Where is the country going? Where is the world going? My daughter, who is a wonderful and very skilled consumer has pointed me in the direction of companies that turn out to do very, very well. And I I think women, in part because we do 85% of the consumption in the U.S., if we start paying attention, Mm -hmm. actually could have a real skill for this. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not to say that we absolutely have to pick individual stocks for our portfolios if we want to be good investors. But it would be an interesting question, right, to just pose to a child. Okay, so you're buying this product. If you were trying to invest in that, you know, is there a company that makes that or is that part of a larger company? Like getting a kid to start thinking about that. And I think that's another part of the disconnect, right, that people don't even talk to their daughters about it but they do talk to their sons more often. We see that in the research, and it's it's very disheartening. I want to get to two important questions, which is how do we get women, perhaps no longer girls, but women, to become more active investors in their own lives? And then how do we recognize in ourselves if a career in investing might suit us. But before I do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster? It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, we'll work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. And you can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more. We are talking with Janet Cowell, CEO of Girls Who Invest, which is an organization working to grow the pipeline of women entering the investment management industry. Let's talk about our own money then let's talk about our careers. How do we spur a greater interest in our own money ourselves? Well, you know, what we've found, and of course, I was treasurer for eight years and had this broad sort of touch points with just one state of North Carolina. But much of what I found was it's what people's parents told them, right? That's how they knew whether to manage money or not. And even in Girls Who Invest, so many of our students come from New Jersey, because they, you know, it's it's in the shadow of New York and the asset management industry. So you realize that you can't just rely on families to convey to women or, you know, men, boys, girls about money. It's got to be embedded in our curriculum, in our schools. Mm-hmm. You have to institutionalize it so that every child is getting exposure to these basic concepts of savings with the piggy bank earning, you know, interest on savings, stock market games and What's happening is, you know, kids through their families or through more elite schools are getting exposure to that, but kids at a lot of schools in America just are not getting exposure. So how does the Girls Who Invest program work? 
So our program targets women, right? They are really young women in undergraduate U.S. colleges and universities. And it gives them education for four weeks on campus so that they have the technical tools and soft training to be ready for an internship, which is then six weeks. And we partner with over 100 financial firms to get the real-life experience of, so these young women are, we match them to these jobs all over the United States because the asset management industry is national. I mean, we have partners in California, we have Chicago, Minneapolis, Boston, New York, and they go do a job for six weeks. We then follow their progress. And when they graduate, um, 80% of the of the young women who've gone through our program have stayed in finance. Some do go to more investment banking sell side, but many do uh, you know, about half stay on the asset management buy side and are actually helping to invest money. How do you get into one of these programs? How do you know if your school has it? What if your school doesn't have it? So we are open to students from every single school in America. So every school has it. It's just do they know about it, right? And we've done, we're, we're a young organization, so we're going into our fifth year. So getting people aware is, is a challenge. Last year, we actually used influencers. So we got students on campus. We had one student at Stanford named Diva. And she was fabulous because she really spread the word about our program, and we got a lot of great applications. We had another student at Emory who was fantastic at spreading the word. And then our own alumni, through word of mouth, spread the word. But we go through career services offices. We've done digital media. We've used influencers. Anything we can do to spread the word that anyone can apply, all majors. Uh, We welcome all majors. Um, We do uh, generally have a 3.5 GPA. We look for certain test scores, but we are looking for a really diverse class because anyone can go into asset management and be successful. What are the test score cutoffs? Because people are going to be listening and they're going to write me a note. What what do I have to have on right. my ACTs? I mean, we generally are looking for, you know, a 30 plus ACT. We do look at kids who have slightly lower ACTs. SAT so, too? SAT, yeah, we we also look at SAT. So either either one. The main thing is get the basketball above the hoop. Apply. Uh, if and it's for sophomores, rising juniors. So all of you who are you're listening out there and you know kids that are you know seniors in high school or freshmen, they can apply when they're that first semester sophomore for this program. We're we're also going to expand to the UK in 2021. So if you know people in the UK, that we're going to have to do a lot of work there to raise awareness of the program. The four-week training that happens online, correct? No, we're uh, on campus. Oh, on yeah, so it's every, taught at every school. No, we have hub campuses where we do the training, and that's been Penn slash Wharton, Notre Dame. They have the Mendoza College of Business, and then uh, this year UCLA Anderson School of Business uh, in Los Angeles will be our other hub university. Um, in 2021, um, Duke University uh, wants to come in, and then Imperial College of London. Uh, which is smack in the middle of London. So students will go to these schools. Right. So students from all universities can apply, and then we collect them together into cohorts, do that training so they get the hands-on and sort of, you know, uh, teaching in a classroom, and then they deploy back out to their internships all over the country and internationally. Is there a cost to this, or do the kids get paid for their work? Uh, There is no cost to students, 
and they do get paid for their internships. And I would say the typical would be about $25 an hour, sometimes 20 depending uh, the employer. And, and while they're in the four-week training program, are, are their costs covered? Yes. We pay for all their room and board. And even for socioeconomically disadvantaged, all they have to do is just say, you know, it, it, it's, it's a challenge for me to even buy the plane ticket to get to campus. We can cover that as well. They just need to state, you know, the reasons for the need. And um, how many will you take this year? So we'll have 180 women on campus. We do have an online program, which you alluded to. Um, and that's for students who, I mean, they may already have lined up an internship. And so they really, you know, would prefer to do that. Um, they do online set of credentials um, and can put that on their LinkedIn profile um, so it's an online program. We have about uh, 180 students in that and then 180 people on campus. And when students go through the um, internship portion of the program, we're all very used to hearing about these finance internships where at the end of your internship you get a job offer. Is that what's happening? Some of our financial partners make return offers and some don't. We partner across all asset classes. Uh, so we have pensions and endowments, you know, college endowments. Not all of them make offers every year. So we kind of, you know, it's not always the case. Where there are return offers made, about 70% of the women get a return offer. We have equities, fixed income. Some of these folks hired directly out of undergrad, but some in the private equity space or others don't. We do have a, a jobs board, and all of our partners and all of our alumni are on there so they can stay in touch. And then after they graduate, you know, they may get a job offer from a private equity firm or go interview with people they got to know three or four years ago. For women who are listening to this and thinking, well, that'd be great, but I'm 30 or older or just, you know, not at the point where they can mm -hmm. apply for this. How do you get started in a finance career if you are thinking, yeah, I, I would really like to do that? Well, I think for career, it is the reason we targeted young undergraduates is it is an apprenticeship career, and you do have to get started early. It is hard, even at the MBA level, to pivot and transfer into asset management. So, I mean, I think it's really the message for high school and college is to try to get some experience early. For those who are later, I mean, I would say that, you know, there are more programs on, you know, lateral reentry, right? These programs trying to get women who may have left the workforce to come back into, particularly in wealth management and areas like that. Um, and then, you know, for women who have industry experience, I certainly think there could be avenues you know, if you were a, a, you know, a tech healthcare expert and ran a company, you might go be a senior advisor to a private equity firm or, or you know, do a partnership there. It's amazing. You're doing such a wonderful service for all of these young women. How has it been for you as a woman in investing? Well, I think the stories that you get a lot of the women in this industry, right, have all experienced what we try to alert the young women to, and you hope it all gets better, but there's been a lot of um, double standards and bias. And, um, and, and I can say I've worked in the private sector as a nonprofit and in government, and it's across the board and in academia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you try to alert women that, you know, these things may occur and how would you handle it without completely discouraging them 
from going forth, knowing that, you know, in any job, any industry is going to have challenges. I think for a while people thought, well, I'll go into tech because that's going to be better than finance. But now we know that tech's, right, got the same issue. So yeah. you can't really escape it. Go do what you want to do. And you will find the right peers and support network and support to, you know, make good decisions and hopefully rise throughout your career. I have to wrap this up, but I do just want to ask in the training, what do you tell young women about handling the sexism and the difficult situations that are gender-based at work? Well, we definitely have a lot of soft skill training where we train women about using their voice, right? How can you influence upward, knowing that these women will be, you know, starting at the entry level? How to use your peers, having your own sort of kitchen cabinet so that you can get advice when these situations arise, like get counsel, and talk, I mean, talk to your HR and all that. But I mean, it's there's no one solution to it, right? It's more of an awareness and a sense that you do have a lot of people who are there to support you. Janet Cowell, thank you so much. Where can we get more information on Girls Who Invest? So we have our website, uh, which is girlswhoinvest.org. And that's where the application is. And there's a lot more information on how to apply and, and uh, sort of other resources there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Catherine Tuggle from HerMoney.com has joined me in the studio. Hey there. Hi. Happy Valentine's Day, belated. Thank you. You too. Did you do anything special? You know, we have a habit of not going out on Valentine's Day. That is so smart. Because it's just one of those really hard to get a reservation that you actually want. And I also feel like they probably mark everything up. It's like a wedding because they know they have a captive audience for this day. Yeah. Do you guys not go out either? No. Never. Yeah, it's. I do sometimes go out for New Year's Eve, um, but yeah, I, I'm. I t- try to go against the crowd. It's like a reverse commute. You know, you're just better off being a little with the opposition. Could not agree more. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting conversation. She was amazing. I think. Um, I, I, as you know, I went to Penn, and there were a lot of finance majors uh, among my friends. And I think about there were a lot of business majors among my friends. And I think about the women I knew who went through Wharton. And by and large, it hasn't changed all that much, at least seemingly based on on what Janet was saying. We tend to go for the softer disciplines in business. We tend to go marketing, advertising, management, and not straight into finance. I always respected, I had a friend in college who did go to Wall Street to be an analyst. She was an all-star research analyst for many, many years. And she was the first woman I ever heard say, I just want to make a lot of money. She had had some family Um, trauma and had watched people really struggle, and she was dead set on the fact that that was not going to be her, and she was going to get a job that paid so she never had to worry. Do you know where she ended up? 
Yeah. I mean, she made a ton of money. She retired and had her children relatively late, but by that time had banked enough, I think, I suspect, to live for the rest of her life, Um, and then ended up going back to work when her kids went into grade school because she was just bored out of her mind. That's amazing. I love to see people who have that path from a young age and then realize it. Yeah. And I think what it made me realize was it's okay for a woman to say, I want to make a lot of money. Totally. And this is one of those ways to do it. And by the way, we have every bit of the skill set needed to tackle this industry. I do think so much comes down to confidence. Agree. Yeah. It's interesting to women who say that they want to make a lot of money. In our episode with Tracy Keogh, mm-hmm. she said that when she was negotiating with her bosses, she made sure to tell them, I'm the primary breadwinner in my home. When you are evaluating my salary, don't think that my husband is at home and he's the main earner and that I'll just take any salary. I'm supporting my family. And she said it made a difference. Well, and I know these statistics because they're in a speech that I just gave, but 38% of women are now the primary breadwinners. And if you add in the number of single women who are de facto head of household, the number is 60%. So that's a case that none of us should have to make, but all of us should probably make. It's so true. Yeah. Let's get to our questions. I know we've got a bunch of them. We do. Our first note is from Megan. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm an avid listener to the Hermony podcast. Thank you for educating us and taking away the stigma and mystery around money and finances. My question is about how student loans affect my credit score. I'm 27 and closing in on paying off my student loans entirely. It feels like a huge win to have paid off nearly $30,000 in just over five years of being out of school thanks to aggressive payments and sacrificing in other areas of my budget. Good for you. Amazing. I have about $1,500 left. These loans are my oldest form of credit, and I'm wondering if my score will go down when I close them out. Should I leave $10 in the account just to keep the loan open? My credit score is 794, which I obviously want to keep intact. According to Credit Karma, the loans are between six to eight years old, and my next oldest line of credit is a credit card that I've had for just four years. I don't want my score to be punished for something that I should be proud of. Will the loans falling off my credit history affect my score significantly? So first of all, congratulations. This is amazing. It takes a lot of hard work and dedication to pay off that much debt in that few years. And so you should just feel really, really proud of that. Your credit score is great. Don't let the fact that you're not over 800 deter you from the fact that if you look at ranges of credit scores, yours is already excellent. And Although paying off the loans might drop it a couple of points, a few points, it is not going to do serious damage to your credit scores. So no, do not leave $10 in that account. Just pay it off. Have a party. Know that the record of you paying off these loans will be a positive mark on your credit score that will stay there or your credit report It will stay there for 10 years before dropping off. And the other thing that you can do to just basically counteract this a little bit is if you've got credit cards and the utilization on those credit cards is a little bit 
high, you can just pay down some of those credit cards. So in any situation, you want the utilization, the amount of your credit lines that you're actually using to be under 30%, but your score will pop if you get closer to 10% or even lower. So I would just go ahead and do that and and do not even worry about leaving $10 on this loan. This is fantastic. So true. Congratulations, Megan. Our next note comes to us from Christina. She writes, Since Jean launched her book at Microsoft this summer, I've been listening to your podcast regularly. So I did an event at Microsoft for the Women Employees Network. Um, It was actually with Fidelity. We had a ton of people there. It was really fun. And Microsoft is just an amazing place. That's awesome. The campus was beautiful. I bet. Yeah. She says, thank you very much for giving me the tools to be able to handle my investments and be confident in my decisions. I'm a 45-year-old software engineer, married, no kids. Currently, I'm maximizing my 401k contributions and purchasing company stocks. I'm curious what to do with my pension plan from a previous employer. Should I cash it out and reinvest it in an IRA or in my 401k? Or should I wait for it to slowly grow and then take the monthly distribution at retirement? If I choose a lump sum, I'll have about $38,000 to invest. My instinct is that reinvesting it might be the best option for earning the most money over time, but I'm not familiar with the taxes and other strings attached. I would really appreciate your input on how to handle this. So I ran the numbers. A question like this, I have to say, really just speaks to my inner math geek. So I really, I love that you wrote with this kind of question. And I think that you're right. If you take the money out of your pension plan and you roll it right into a retirement account, an IRA, a Roth IRA, you're not going to have to worry about paying taxes on it. So let's just put that to the side for a second. The real question is, where are you going to get the biggest bang for your buck? And so I took your 38000 and I plugged it into a simple savings calculator. If you Google the words, what will my savings be worth, you'll get a whole slew of calculators. And so I took that $38,000. I assumed you would add no money to it. You're 45. I figured you'd retire at 65. So I gave you 20 years. And I ran it at two different growth rates. If, if the money grows because you invested at 6%, which I think is pretty conservative, by the time you retire, you'll have about $125,000. If it grows at 8%, by the time you retire, you'll have about $187,000. So then I took those sums of money and I applied the 4% rule, which basically says if you withdraw 4% of the balance each year while investing the rest, that money should last you 30 years. The first number gets you to $5,000 a year or about $420 a month. The second gets you to $7,500 a year or $625 a month. And that's based on the money lasting you about 30 years. The risk in this scenario is that you could live longer, right? And pensions are designed to provide income for as long as you live, which is why my guess is that the pension payout would be lower than you would get on this. I also, because I was having so much fun, I also (laughs) took that $38,000 and I plugged it into the calculator at immediateannuities.com to see if you took that sum right now and used it to buy an annuity where you would take the payout starting 20 years from now 
and you set that payout up so that it would last the rest of your life, you'd get $344 a month. And so that pretty much confirmed my suspicion that what you'll get by investing the money that you're yourself is better than what you would get in an annuity right now. The thing to remember is that annuities and their payouts are based on a lot of things. And one of those things is interest rates. And interest rates right now are really low. I like the idea of having enough of a fixed income in retirement with Social Security to know that you can cover your fixed costs for the rest of your life. But I suspect that growing the money yourself and converting it to an annuity down the road when A, you're older and the money doesn't have to last as long and B, interest rates might be a little bit higher is probably going to be the better way to go if that income for life is something that appeals to you. I love this analysis. I I also love that you're the rare breed of English major who is also a math geek. I I really like the numbers. I know. I had so much fun with this. So thank you, Christina. Our last note comes to us from Chris, who writes, I'm looking for a recommendation for online savings accounts for my business. I have two personal online savings accounts, but neither company offers a business account option. I have over $130,000 in my business money market account at a bank where I do my checking and payroll, but I want to invest some of that cash into a higher yield account. Any suggestions would be helpful. Thank you so much. I love your podcast and recommend it to everyone. Aw, thank you so much, Chris. Um, Yeah, I'm with you. I think that you are going to want to move some of that business cash, the business cash that you're not going to need to pay your bills for the next couple of months, into some sort of a higher-yielding online savings account where it'll just get you 20 times the return that that you're likely getting from this big bank. Some big banks do have that higher paying option, but others don't. It sounds like you've done your research on this. So you just do some searching, and you can actually find a really good list of these accounts at Her Money. If you go to hermoney.com slash saving, you'll find a list of these high interest rate savings accounts, and you can just go through that link and find the one that works best for you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for writing. If you want to send us a note, we are at mailbag at hermoney.com. And in today's Thrive, we all know the importance of sitting down with a financial professional who can guide us on the steps we need to take to reach our big financial goals. But let's just take a step back and talk about dispensing with all the frustrating lingo. You know what I'm talking about. It is the liberal use of acronyms you have never heard of, the purposefully confusing terms that get used when plain English would have sufficed. It is so important that you understand the conversation that you're having with your advisor. If you don't understand it, you have to demand clarity. And if you feel like you're being condescended to when you're talking about money, just ask questions until you understand. I have done this for my whole life as a financial journalist. I would just badger my sources to explain and explain and explain until I really got it. And those people who did not have patience with me would find their quotes 
on the cutting room floor, exactly where your advisors who don't have patience with you should find themselves. It is your money, your money. And there are plenty of advisors out there who will not only treat you as an equal, they can even make these conversations fun. So if any of this is ringing a bell for you, it is time to find another advisor, ASAP, who does speak your language. You can trust me. They do exist. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Janet Cal for the encouraging words and the thoughts on how we can all get more women, particularly young women, interested in investing. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through PRX. Tune in next week. We'll be back with Melanie Katzman, author of Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk soon.